Loving God, loving people, changing the world. Loving God, loving people, changing the world. Okay, you're waking up. Loving God, loving people, changing the world. Guys, that's the deal. That's what God's called us to. And so the last uh, few weeks we've been talking about this uh, and trying to dig into it a little bit and give us some perspective, at least some uh, foundation for what does it mean to actually walk with God in this place, in this time, in this season where he's planted us? What does it look like for us as individuals? What does it look like for us as a church? So we've been talking about that, and, and this motto of Grace Fellowship is kind of a, like a three-legged stool, if you will, right? Uh, three very distinct things, but you take any one of them out and the whole thing topples. And so we decided it would be good to just spend a little bit of time grappling with this and thinking together about what does this mean. And so we talked the last two weeks about those first two legs of the stool, loving God and loving people. And I hope that's been informative. I hope it's been encouraging to you. Um, But honestly, for most of us, even though we know we're not perfect at those things, those two mandates seem relatively attainable. You know, we can love God because God is so lovely. God is so lovable. God is perfect in every way. And so we look at that, we go, yeah, I think maybe I can do that. The, the issue of loving people gets a little more challenging, right? But still, all of us have had at least a little success at loving people. And so when we hear about loving God and loving people, we're like, okay, this is reasonable. This can be done. And it's not new. This is the stuff that the people of God have been commanded since there have been people of God. They've been hearing this mandate from the earliest times of the Old Testament books over and over. It's repeated in a bunch of different ways. And we saw this a couple weeks ago when the guy came to Jesus and said, hey, how would you sum up the law and the prophets? What's the whole thing about? He goes, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is like it, you will love your neighbor as yourself. And then we looked at it last week in Luke's account and we saw that in another instance, Jesus is uh, dealing with another lawyer from among the uh, Pharisees and the leaders. And this guy comes to him with some questions and Jesus poses the question to him. He says, well, how do you read the law? What do you think it all comes down to? And the guy says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus goes, you're right. Now go do that. And that creates a little bit of controversy, right? Jewish children memorized that statement from the time they were old enough to talk. It was the foundational principle of life for the people of God for all time. It was was the foundational principle for Moses 
and the people that he led. It was the foundational principle for David and the people that he led. Skip ahead to the time of Elijah, it was still the foundational principle. Go ahead to the time of Daniel, still the foundational principle. Read on and you get to the book of Malachi, still the foundational principle. You turn into the New Testament, you meet John the Baptist, and what is he basically saying? Love God and love people, same principle. Jesus begins to travel and preach and influence people, and what is he saying? Love God and love people, same principle. In the early church, all throughout the book of Acts, they're doing it, they're preaching it, and they're talking about it. Love God and love people. The church fathers, they write about it. Love God and love people. The reformers make this the cornerstone of everything that they're talking about. Love God and love people. The great evangelists and the theologians of the 18th and 19th and 20th centuries all have it in their sermons and their writings, and it leads to these great revivals and great awakenings. Love God and love people. And it's also true for us today. So this is nothing new. It hasn't changed. If, if you're, you know, this is the first time you've ever set foot in a Christian worship service, this may be the first time you've ever heard of this idea. But other than that, if you've been around the church for any length of time, if you own a Bible and read it from time to time, you can't help but come across this principle, love God and love people. That calling on our lives from God has not changed. He says we need to focus on loving him and we need to focus on loving others. And if you've ever read your Bible or been to Sunday school, you've heard about that. And even though we're not perfect in the application of that principle, most of us are not intimidated by it. Most of us don't hear that and go, oh my goodness, how could I ever possibly do that? That's ridiculous. That is too high a standard. Nobody could ever attain to that. We're not intimidated like that because God is so easy to love because he's perfect. And although it's not always easy to love people, as I said, we've all had some success at that. And, and at least we don't hear that commandment and freak out and go, I could never possibly do that. But then we get to the third leg of the stool. We get to love God, we get to love people, but then it says change the world, and we go, oh, that's hyperbole. <laughs> they can't be serious about that. I mean, we, we, we hear love God and we shake nod our heads. We hear love people and, and we say amen. And we hear change the world and we roll our eyes and go, that's for somebody else. That's not, that's not really what God's called me to be about. But the truth of the matter is, it is what he's called us to be about, no matter how we feel about it. We, we say, uh, you know, I am one of eight billion people on the earth. What possible difference is somebody like me gonna make? And after all, I'm not a superstar. I spend most of my time just trying not to mess things up worse than they already are. That's kind of my big goal for every day, right? I'm, I'm just trying to get to work without spilling my coffee. That's a victory for me on a Monday morning. Or, or I'm just trying to remember to pick up all the kids from school in the afternoon. If I, if I accomplish that, I feel like I've had a good day and, and I deserve a nap, right? So, so you see a statement in our church motto that says, uh, change the world, and you just go, yeah, that's kind of ridiculous. That, that they're obviously not serious. That's a marketing thing. That's a, that, uh, it just looks good on paper, but nobody actually thinks that God's going to use little me 
to change the world. We, and we don't actually have the arrogance as a church community to think God's going to use this congregation, this church family to change the world. We just kind of roll our eyes at that and we think I'm probably not really going to make much of a difference. And so we're tempted to settle for just having nice programs at church that help us remember to love God and try to love people a little better. And if we could do that, we're going to call it a day. And here's the thing. I am just childlike enough in my faith to believe that um, what God says in his word, he actually means. And um, so I'm going to devote the rest of the time that I have today, the next three and a half hours when I have your attention, (laughs) I'm going to devote the, the bit of time that I have left today to trying to convince you that God is serious when he calls us to join him in changing the world and that he knew what he was doing when he called you and me to be a significant part of a plan that he has that has eternal significance and eternal implications. So let's just think about it together. You guys remember Elijah, right? Old Testament, 1 Kings, if, you don't, if you're not familiar with Elijah, let me just encourage you, take your Bibles this week. It's a homework assignment for you. Go to 1 Kings chapter 17. You're going to open to 1 Kings 17. Read all the way through 2 Kings chapter 2. I don't care if it takes you all week to read through it. You're going to see the picture of this great man of God named Elijah, right? 1 Kings 17 through 2 Kings chapter 2. But by way of summary... Let me just say this, because we're not going to take the time to read his story today. Let's just say that Elijah is basically a Bible superhero. He is in the top 1% of the top 1% of the great people of the Bible. Uh, And and just to give you a little um, snapshots of what his life was all about, in the case of Elijah, he's the one who was called to be a prophet of God during a time when Israel was far away from God, where paganism ruled in the land and where the ruling family was completely evil and they were worshipers of false gods in the nation that calls themselves the people of God. There were pagan temples everywhere. And, uh, and the people were being abused, and the situation in Elijah's day was terrible. And Elijah somehow, some way, had the courage to confront the political leaders of his day and say, you know what, it is not okay for you to be evil and to call them to righteousness. I know, it's a bizarre concept, right? <laughs> and, and they, of course, didn't take that very well. There was this religion during the time of Elijah in Israel where they worshiped this God named Baal, this false god. And the vast majority of the people were Baal worshipers during Elijah's time. And so Elijah being the one, the only prophet of God that he knew of at the time, of course, you know what, sometimes when we feel lonely and like we're the only ones doing anything for God, we don't realize there's a whole lot of stuff going on around us that God is doing that we don't know anything about, amen? So that's kind of where Elijah was at, and, and he goes single-handedly and challenges them to a public duel of their gods. And you can read the story in 1 Kings, but he basically 
um, gets the 400 prophets of Baal together and he says, let's figure out which God is real. And so he tells them to pray to their God and nothing happens. And then when he prays to the God of heaven, he calls down fire from heaven and it eats up the sacrifice and the water and everything there. And he says, this is the one true God. And in one day, just by faith, Elijah basically wipes out the whole false religion that has inundated Israel. He chases paganism out of the land. As I said, he confronted the political leaders of the day and brought about real change. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He talked to God face to face on the holy mountain. Um, and, oh yeah, he never died. Elijah was taken up to heaven by God supernaturally. God sent a flaming chariot of angels to come and pick him up. And while his buddy stood there watching, <laughs> he flew to heaven like Santa at the end of Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving? <laughs> it turns out Santa's not in the Bible, so it doesn't matter that I got that wrong. <laughs> So, so that's Elijah, right? No wonder he's a superstar. And, and in the New Testament, he shows up at the transfiguration, right? It's Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. And, and God's like, hey, everybody, it's these guys, right? That's Elijah. And um, so when I say that Elijah was an impressive guy, who changed the world during his lifetime, I think you get what I'm saying. And I know what you're thinking. Well, that was Elijah. Amen. I'm not Elijah. Elijah was special. Elijah was chosen by God. Elijah was empowered by the Holy Spirit. Elijah was a Bible hero. I am nothing like that. Really? Are you a Christian? If you're a Christian, you are chosen by God. If you're a Christian, you are empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. The same Spirit of God that empowered Elijah to do all the amazing things that God did through him is the same Spirit of God who gets on the 210 freeway with you every Monday morning. Same God. And, and I want to read you a verse that has turned out to be one of the most profoundly important verses in my life. Go to the back of your New Testament and go to the book of James. It's a little book very near the back. Uh, Hebrews is a big book and it's right in front of James. But I want you to go for, first to James and then we're actually going to go back to Hebrews in just a minute. But in James chapter 5, I'm going to read you this little verse. And when we're reading through James chapter 5, we're seeing all this cool stuff and it's real meaningful and all that. And we get to verse 17 and we don't even notice it and we just keep going. And I'm telling you, this is one of the most life-changing verses, one of the most meaningful verses you're ever going to find if you actually stop and think about what it says. Here's what it says, James 5, 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Did you hear me? Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Some of your translations will say it this way, and I like this. Elijah was a man just like us. 
We have this idea that somehow these great men and women of God that we read about in scripture, read about in the history books, or even see from afar in the Christian church today, we go, wow, that's a superstar. That's Billy Graham. That's a superstar, right? And we see these people and we go, man, that's a different category of person. Here's Elijah, and what does the New Testament say about Elijah? Elijah was a man just like you. Same nature, same kind of person as you, just like us. In fact, let me knock Elijah down a peg or two and knock you up a peg or two. Because guess what? Elijah was not indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You are, Christians. That's a big difference. Elijah did not have a Bible in his hand. And I know what you're thinking. It was probably on his iPhone. No, it wasn't. That he didn't have a Bible. And yet, without being indwelt by the Holy Spirit, without having the Word of God at his disposal, Elijah was used by God to change the world. That's an exception, right? That's an exceptional person. That's an exceptional situation. Well, let's just see how exceptional Elijah was. If you're in James, just turn a few pages to the left and get to Hebrews 11. And let's see if this is really exceptional or not. In Hebrews 11, I'm not gonna read the whole thing. You can kind of follow through with me here and I'm gonna just highlight this a little bit because it's a long chapter. But here's what it says, beginning in verse one, Hebrews 11:1. 1. Now faith is the assurance or the, or the confidence of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the men of old gained approval. How did these great Bible heroes gain the approval of God? Was it because they were so special? Was it because they did so many great things? No, it says here that it was by faith that they gained the approval of God. It was their faith. And then he explains, by faith, We understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of that that things which are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death and he was not found because God took him up for he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. I wish I had time to just talk to you a little bit about Enoch, but what does he have in common with Elijah? He didn't die. God took him up, just said, oh, he was there? And he wasn't there. He was just in heaven with God. And, and why was he so honored by God? Because his life was pleasing to God. Those are words worth highlighting in your Bible. Pleasing to God, because listen to what it says in verse six. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir to the righteousness which is according to faith. 
By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed God by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. So we all have that in common with Abraham. Half the time, we don't know where we're going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. And he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore... There was born even of one man, and him as good as dead at that, as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number, and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. He goes all the way back to the beginning of Genesis and talks to us about Cain and Abel. He keeps going and he talks about Enoch who was taken up into heaven because of his faith. He talks about Noah who believed God about something that was impossible to believe God about, but he took God at his word because he knew who God was and he built an ark and God used him to restart humanity. By faith, Abraham left the land that he was comfortable with to a land that he did not know and walked with God the entire time. By faith, Sarah conceived when she was a bazillion years old and had a baby, the child of the promise, because God had promised and she considered God faithful. Let's keep going. Skip down to verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise was offering up his only begotten son. Where have we heard that term before? He offered up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said in Isaac, your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. This was to point to Jesus. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau and regarding things to come. And it goes on and talks about the faith of Jacob, the faith of Joseph, the faith of Moses. And we continue on down. We get finally to verse 32 and he says, And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. All of this by faith. Now, what does it mean when the Bible says that all these people did all these great things, these world-changing things by faith? What does that phrase mean? It simply means they believed God. They took God at his word. They considered him faithful. They took him at his promise. None of them, it says, stood up and said, hey God, I'm your person. You can, I can do it for you. None of them ever tried to do anything for God. It was what God promised that caused them to trust him, right? I like to define biblical faith this way. Faith is believing that God is who he says he is and that he will do what he says he will do and then acting like you believe it. Listen, of course you and I don't have the power to truly change the world in any substantial way. 
But guess what? God does. And his track record is pretty impressive. And, and here's the really amazing part. If you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit, God himself, lives in you. And he has invited you, even commanded you, as we've been seeing the great commandment, to join him in the world-changing work that he is doing. One of the mistakes we often make as followers of God is that we get some great idea about what's important to us and what we want to do, and we make some plan, and then we pray about it because we're Christians. We need to pray about this, right? We've got the plan. We've got the idea. We've got the inspiration. We've got the vision. Now all we need is God. So we go to God and say, hey, God, I got this great plan. I got this great idea. I got this great vision, and I'm going to start tomorrow. Please bless my work. With all due respect, God ain't interested in your work. For us to think that we've got to dream up a plan and, and muster up the power and then ask God to join us in what we're doing is an offense to God. God says, I am already at work and I command you to join me. He gets the job done. So doesn't that change our perspective a little bit when we think about, can I really be used to change the world? It's not about my power. It's about his. It's not about my wisdom. It's about his. It's not about my strength. It's about his. And it's certainly not about my faithfulness. All through Hebrews 11, it says they considered him faithful who had made the promises. In fact, let me share a principle with you. Go, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Just flip back um, a little bit to the left. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and we're just going to look at these two verses real briefly. Uh, Paul basically has been talking about his ministry. He and some of the other apostles and some of their cohorts and co-workers in ministry. And, and he gets to chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians, and he, here's what he says. Verse 1, let a man regard us in this manner, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. This is a mental model we've got to get straight in our minds or we're actually never gonna have the courage to join God in what he's doing. You are not required to accomplish anything for God. You are a steward of the mysteries of God. You are a steward of the gospel of God. You are a steward of the resources that God has put at your disposal to be used for his purposes. And Paul, the great apostle, says, listen, I know that when I come to speak in a, in a um, gathering of Christians, people come from cities miles around to hear me because I'm the famous apostle Paul. He goes, you know what I am? I'm a servant. I'm a steward. I don't accomplish anything for God, but I serve God that he might accomplish something among you. It is required of a steward, not that one be successful, but that one be found faithful. New American Standard says trustworthy. A lot of other translations say faithful, and it means faithful in the sense of, of being trustworthy. God measures success among his people, 
not in terms of the greatness of your accomplishments, but in terms of your faithfulness, your trustworthiness to be a steward. You remember the parable of the talents? Again, we won't look it up today. You can read it on your own this week. This is one of those stories that Jesus tells to illustrate a, a point. And he, he tells a story. He says, you know, there was this master and he had to go away for some time. So he had these three servants and he gave to one five talents or, or five sums of money, let's say $5,000. To the other one, he gave $2,000. And to the third one, he gave $1,000. And he said, hey, I want you to use this to further my interests while I'm gone and I'll be back and you can be accountable for it. For it. And finally, when he comes back, the one who had the five grand says, here's 10 grand, I invested and doubled your money. And the master says to him, well done, good and faithful servant. To the second one, he says, you gave me 2,000, here's 4,000, I invested and doubled your money. And the, and the master says to him, well done, good and faithful servant. And of course, to the third servant, the one who had been given one talent, he took that money and buried it in the ground. And when the master asked about what he had done with the resources he had left him, he said, I knew you to be a hard man. And I was concerned about what you might do to me if I invested and lost your money. So instead of losing it, I buried it in the ground. And here's your thousand dollars back. And the master called him a wicked and evil slave. Now, what in the world is the difference? I mean, th this guy got more money to work with to begin with. This guy got more money. This guy, he, he was the bottom of the totem pole. Obviously, the master didn't have a whole lot of trust in him to begin with. And for good reason. He told these other guys, well done, good and faithful servant. Why? Because they saw themselves as stewards whose job it was to advance the interests of the master. And advancing the interests of the master was success. The third guy was not criticized because he didn't make a profit. He was criticized because he watched out for himself instead of the interests of the master. That's the difference. Two of them thought of themselves as stewards. One of them was looking out for himself. And so when God calls us and he says, listen, I want you to be a part of what I'm doing to change the world for eternity. I want you to be a difference maker. I wanna flow through you and change lives. I wanna see you love God and love people and I want you to see what I can do with a person who would surrender to me like that. When he's saying that, he's not asking you to get amazing results. Because you know what? What I think are amazing results are not yet necessarily what God thinks are amazing results. Is that true? I, I, there's so much I don't know. The things I value, the things I think are important, I think sometimes God is just sitting up in heaven shaking his head going, why don't I just kill him and get him out of there? <laughs> and, and, and God understands what's important. And so are we really gonna measure our success in terms of whether we reached our goals and worked our plan and accomplished our vision and all that kind of stuff? Or are we gonna measure success in terms of whether or not we were faithful stewards? Love God, love people, and when we do that, he changes the world. Guys, if we're not changing the world, it's not because God is not with us. He is. It's not because God is not faithful. He is. If we're not involved in the world-changing activities of God, it's because we're not living as faithful stewards. 
our time, our resources, our attention, the opportunities that we're given. It's because we so easily forget about God's interests because we're so interested in our interests. But it doesn't have to continue that way. It's not a matter, man, I hope you hear this. It's not a matter of greater commitment on your part. It's a matter of complete surrender. Commitment says, hey God, I'll do better. Hey God, I'll work harder. Hey God, you can count on me. And God in all of his grace chooses not to kill us when we say things like that. That's commitment. God has watched us make a thousand promises and break a thousand promises. He knows we're not faithful. That's not the point. He's faithful. So he's not asking us for more commitment. Man, I really think, man, am I on a tangent here? Bear with me. I really think that some of the weakness of the 21st century Western church can be chalked up to the fact that we as preachers get so excited when we can get someone to raise their hand and say they're making a commitment. Any kind of commitment. I, I commit myself to Jesus. I commit myself to tithing. I commit myself to volunteering. I commit myself to being nice to my husband. I commit myself to being a better parent for my kids. I commit myself to witnessing to my neighbors. And, and we as preachers get such a thrill when we get to that point at the end of the service and we say every head bowed and every eye closed. And now if you want to just commit yourself to God, just slip up your hand. Yes, I see that hand. I see that hand. It's so thrilling for us as preachers. And we have consistently asked people to make commitments to do things on their own strength instead of calling on people to do what God calls them to do, and that is to lay down their life and take up his. It's not about commitment. It's about surrender. It's about, you know, one of the things, when, I, when I'm worshiping God in song, which is probably my favorite way to worship, when I worship God in song, I just don't even know. I just, my, my hands, they just, they just go up. And, and every time I stop and analyze, why does that happen? Why do I always do? I don't even think about it. I just, my hands raise so often in praise of God. And, I, and then I always think about, you know, those old Western movies? And then the, the guy comes into the bank, and what does he say? Stick them up. When I raise my hands, it's the universal symbol of surrender. It's the universal symbol of you're in charge and I ain't. Man, that needs to be our heart of worship. God calls us to a place of surrender. Elijah was a man just like us, weak easily distracted, weighed down by the flesh, tempted by the enemy. He gets so discouraged. It's not all happiness in those passages, those uh, chapters I gave you to read. He gets so discouraged and so depressed, he begs God to kill him. He's weak. Elijah is a man just like us. But God used him and all these others that were mentioned and so many more to change the world. 
James 5 says he was just like us. And if we had finished reading the verse, it would say, and he prayed fervently. He's just like us, and he prayed fervently that God would not send rain, and there was no rain in the land for three years, and then he prayed fervently that God would send rain, and the rain returned to the land. Did Elijah control the weather? He made it rain. He got fire to come down out of heaven. Did Elijah do that? No. No. Elijah was a man just like me. Except for this one thing, he prayed fervently. Maybe God wants to talk to me about my prayer life. Maybe God wants to have you think a little bit more about whether whether you're just talking about having a relationship with him or whether your relationship with him is real and active and living and whether or not you pray fervently. Elijah was a man just like us and he prayed fervently. Maybe you and I should start that too. And then, like the people mentioned in Hebrews 11, I wanna encourage you, start to look around and notice where God is already working and join him there. Maybe you'll get a chance to share Christ with a friend. Maybe you should think about signing up as foster parents. Maybe you could volunteer at a homeless shelter. Maybe you could invest in just those, those tiny little guys that ran out of here when I got up here to preach and you wished you could go with them, but you couldn't. Man, the, the, the people in there that are loving on those kids right now are changing the world. Maybe that's something God might call you to be about. Maybe you could just decide you're going to pray for a missionary by name every day. Maybe you could, you could write letters to an inmate so they know they're not forgotten. Maybe you could give somebody a ride to worship service on Sundays. Maybe you could just attend a grace group and actually invest in the lives of those people that are sitting around you in that living room every week. You don't change the world by setting out to change the world. You simply live as a faithful steward and join God while he is changing the world. And the foundation of that is that you have to love him and that by his power you love people. And he will change the world through us, the Grace Fellowship family, as we collectively surrender to his calling to love God, love people, and change the world. So that's the motto, loving God, loving people, changing the world. It's simple, but it ain't easy. What steps do you need to take this week to get involved in God's world-changing mission with him? Let me encourage you not to commit to make those steps, but to surrender to his guidance and direction in your life as his steward who wants to be found faithful. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed fervently 
and watched as the world was transformed before his eyes. That's what he's remembered for. What will we be remembered for? Let me invite you to stand and we'll pray together. Lord, as we think about the pictures you've given us in Scripture of these people who were so flawed, made so many mistakes, got so distracted and got off track so many times, and yet through them you changed the world. Not because they're great, but because you're great. God, we think of that and we so long to be pleasing to you in that way. We know that apart from faith, it's impossible to please you. And we know that that faith manifests itself in believing that you are who you say you are, you'll do what you said you'll do, and then acting on that belief. And so, God, we lay ourselves down again. We put ourselves at your throne, at your feet. We offer ourselves to you as surrendered sacrifices, as a church family, as a united, surrendered sacrifice, that you might do whatever it is you want to do and change the world through us, we pray. For it's in Jesus' powerful and mighty and glorious name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen.